All right. Um, welcome to Professor Latinx podcast. And today we're going to be talking about Netflix originals with Olivia Cosentino, who is university, uh, presidential university fellow, fellowship, uh, dissertation writing student at the moment, and who's published ex- extensively on Mexican movies and the star system. Olivia, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So excited. Olivia, tell us uh, before we kind of jump in here and talk about all of this money that Netflix is throwing into you know uh, Mexican shows and films um, in the last couple of years. Tell us, uh, share a little bit about your research with our um, audience. Sure. So my research is on the second half of the 20th century. I'm looking at different processes of cultural modernization across Mexican media, um, and I'm centering it on four different youth stars. So looking at, um, through each youth star, the sort of transformation in not only how Mexicans were thinking about youth, but also these changing ideologies surrounding gender and sexuality. Um, So my research is not exactly what we're going to be talking about today, but I see a lot of... um, a lot of uh, dialogue with this idea of Netflix in the 21st century as being a critical part of the Mexican mediascape. Um, so I'm excited that we're going to talk about this because I think stars are something that are super important for Netflix um, in Mexico. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's launch with some of the, you know, Netflix. Well, let's the, uh, believe the first Netflix original Spanish language production, which was the mm-hmm. Club de Cuervos. Um, yeah. What What are you thinking about something like that as, um, uh, you know, on the menu now for viewers in Mexico and in the United States and worldwide? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting series. Um, The soccer thing is an obvious choice for uh, Latin American series in general, but I do think that they go beyond um, soccer to really humanize the characters and give them a lot of depth. Um, Something that I am hoping we'll talk a bit about today is sort of the general whiteness of a lot of the Mexican characters that we're seeing um, and this is certainly true for Club de Cuervos, but there is a bit more variety um, in terms of socioeconomic class that we're seeing there, especially with like all the players and not just the people who are running the soccer club. But how do you do you like that show? What do you think about the show? Yeah, I you know it's interesting. I think I'm glad you brought up the kind of the the casta system as it sort of weaving itself in and through these. Netflix productions, um, and you're right. I mean, yeah, we get a little, a little more about um, you know the players and the diversity. Um, they're not just you know class diversity, phenotypic diversity, and even right. you know some issues in and around kind of domestic situations where you actually see um, partners, um, you know, um, in in the space and. You know, unlike some of the other original content that Netflix has been producing, you actually get um, a good sense of the different spaces of Mexico represented, right? Regional spaces, Definitely. landscapes, cityscapes. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, our protagonists and the ones that are at the center of the kind of the tension and the, the narrative are, 
you know, weddows for the most part, um, mm-hmm. which isn't totally surprising. But gosh, right. I know. Don't aren't you a little bit tired of that too? I mean, it just it just keeps happening. I feel like I'm unsurprised that literally every new show has very very light skinned Mexicans at the center. Um, it just it's it's sort of become the Netflix norm is what I'm seeing. Uh, at the same time, I think perhaps some shows do a better job of nuancing that than others. Um, like, for example, in uh, El Club, which I was just watching, I think they do a good job of showing sort of this differentiation between the super light-skinned main protagonist and the domestic employee in mm. his house. And there's at least some space given to um, the domestic employees. I mean, it's not a ton of development, but um, I would say there's a bit more nuance there than in Club de Cuervos. But. Yeah, no, I, I see what you're talking about. Um, and, you know, that's another thing. I'm glad you brought up El Club because it's created by, you know, uh, Latina, right, a Mexicana. Um, mm-hmm. And I do see some more women behind the camera, right, behind the camera and the writing of yeah. the shows. Um, that would then I think we really saw in the past where we could kind of count them on one hand. Um, so that's exciting, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, totally. And something else I wanted, one of the bigger things that I was reflecting on um, about sort of these shows and some of the trends we're seeing is um, how they're advertised on Netflix, like what they seem like they might be about, and like the sort of draws of what Netflix thinks people think about Latin America. Um, so advertising the sort of like um, the hyper violence and the you know spectacular of soccer, the spectacular of drugs and drug selling, but in reality, a lot of the shows have a lot more to them. Um, than just these sort of like hooking elements that Netflix seems to think um, will draw audiences to Mexican productions. I um, see. Yeah, I see what you're talking about. So uh, we've, you know, we've read, we've heard that Netflix originals um, in Mexico um, is really trying to, you know, put the money in Mexico with the creation of mm-hmm. stories coming from storytellers in Mexico, and yet the the packaging is still business as usual, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yep. So to getting yep. getting our, getting viewers outside of that space into these new stories, say, um, is still business as usual. Um, mm-hmm. Of exactly. course, Netflix is so invested in this because you know basically the international audience is where it really needs to grow um, to continue to make right. money, right? So, you know, absolutely. I read somewhere that they're pumping in about 200 million, um, you know, more dollars into original production just in Mexico alone. Um, Which, I mean, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I'm always so frustrated by these sort of barriers to scholarship and research because Netflix is a private company and doesn't have to share information about viewership um, whatsoever. Like it, it mm. chooses the information that it gets to share. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember that Manolo Caro, the director and creator of um, La Casa de las Flores, the House of Flowers, um, was tweeted very excitedly about how it had been the top viewed show for a month. 
but how much other information do we have? You know, is that is that uncommon? Is that common? I'm assuming that's not very common, but the sort of lack of information that's available to scholars is, I mean, at times very troubling for me since Netflix really can control what we know and don't know. Mm, yeah, that's true. And they keep a really tight kind of container on how producers are paid back um, and paid how the workers on the films themselves are, are, you know, how that money, how that two million, mm-hmm. two hundred million is actually getting into the hands of, um, you know, the workers on the ground. Actually, um, that's all. Kept yeah, no. very, very hush hush. Um, it is true. I have an important anecdote that I wanted to share. Actually, um, I have a friend in Mexico who just recently started a company called La Pisca Film Research. And what they do is provide um, like found footage to um, essentially anyone making a film. And so she and her company were hired by Netflix to provide some footage for Historia de un Crimen, um, Colosio, or Crime Diaries, the candidate. So a lot of the found footage that you see there was actually procured by her company and she was hired directly by Netflix. So that's, for me, amazing, the fact that she is able to get paid and find work through Netflix um, producing this original content. Wow. So I have to give props to Netflix for yeah, that. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. Um, and I think probably all of our information is you know, going to be pretty anecdotal at this point. Right? <laughs> um, but I'm, right. I'm glad right. you're there listening and asking the questions. Um, let's talk about a little bit about you know this uh, another very... Um, popular show in addition to Casa, which is um, Monarca. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, gosh, is this, this feels really business as usual, but maybe you have some insight in this into why people are so excited about this show. You know, I honestly had started it a while ago. It didn't hook me. Um, I think... For me, I just read it as this is what we think you want to see as a global audience watching a Mexican uh, production. And there were just too many elements that felt just stale. And I guess probably the storytelling is done in a way that is captivating to audiences. Um, But I honestly was not impressed by the sort of themes that were explored or the character development it felt it i mean it just it didn't feel like anything new or exciting for me yeah there's i mean for me again it's like the light-skinned the kind of euro mexicans are the protagonists um and Mm -hmm. then the sort of the darker more um sort of you know um, indigenous mestizos are kind of, you know, in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, also, there are just some real flaws in the kind of the logic of it. I mean, it seems like even the kind of older school telenovelas like, you know, uh, Ribelde and, you know, some of those other ones where mm-hmm. we actually got a better sense of the different spaces that the characters are interacting in here it's supposed Mm -hmm. to be this lavish kind of really elite 
world. And we come, you know, just on a really simple, you know, kind of shot. We have this, you know, majestic, you know, the the hacienda, the the big ranch. Mm-hmm. And then we go in and the the spaces don't reflect the the majesticness of, you know, the outside spaces. The same thing when we enter into the city. Um, but, you know, also some, you know, weird sort of, you know, problems in logic where, you know, um, characters should be behaving, say, as middle-class characters, like the, mm-hmm. the, the high school principal, um, but who's actually behaving like one of the, you know, super uber elite, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, they're, mm-hmm. I don't know, but it's, you know, seems to have struck a chord and people seem to like it. Maybe it's that, the narcos and the, the kind of yeah. the tourist view of reconstructive view of Mexico, the um, yeah, the sort of high production value. I was really surprised because you know one of the producers is Salma Hayek. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. It was concerning for me because I I'm always still really hesitant to think about um, sort of. Something I've always questioned in my work is this idea that um, stars crossing from Mexico to the U.S. have somehow succeeded. And I see that a lot in um, sort of this reflection of Selma Hayek as being, you know, someone who's crossed over, someone who's made it, but then like coming back to do this kind of show that just keeps Mexico within its stereotypes, you know, it's it's difficult for me to endorse a show like this mm-hmm. when I think that there's so many other stories that could be told. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. And also you mentioned in your, that in your work, you, um, you know, address issues or think about issues of um, sexuality and gender. And, mm-hmm. you know, I am, um, I don't know. I'm just tired, a little bit tired of the way that, kind of reconstructions of gay Mexican men are kind of put in front of the camera. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. always the same thing, you know, and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it would be nice to see a little more complexity instead of the same type, you know, being presented, the brother who's in the closet or the husband who's, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Or even, I mean, La Casa de las Flores, Manolo Caro, mm -hmm. in my personal opinion, is incredibly homonormative. I mean, it's really not pushing a ton of boundaries. And I actually, fun fact, got into a Twitter argument with Manolo Caro about a year ago. He tweeted this really uh, off-color um, thing about how well if uh, if we have to have a trans actor to play a trans character, then I don't want to have to be the one casting um, like a murderer to play a murderer, mm-hmm. like a person who's murdered. <laughs> and I found it so problematic that, um, and I mean, obviously he's referring to um, the character in La Casa de las Flores, um, who is a cis gender mm-hmm. heterosexual male actor who plays a trans um, woman, mm-hmm. a woman who's trans. And I found that super problematic just because I think 
Um, he really did not seem to understand that casting is so political um, and it's a space for change. And he's in this position of power to make that change. And Caro could have cast um, so many op- like mm-hmm. op- options of, uh, of trans actors and mm-hmm. chose not to. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think that, I mean, Julian Hernandez has done a lot of mm. much more interesting sort of mm-hmm. reflections on sexuality um, mm-hmm. that don't kind of fit in this norm. And his stuff isn't on Netflix. Surprise, surprise. Mm, yeah. Right? It's so, funny. I've seen people let him um, Carlo off the hook by saying, oh, no, well, this is a kind of meta satire. You know, it's like so above criticism, you know, because of that. And then but then I'm like, hold on. I mean, yeah, there's the the whole messed up casting issue. But and the kind of business as usual with, you know, the the kind of closeted character. Um, Mm -hmm. And of course, the indigenous representations are just like abysmal right i mean mm-hmm. it's okay to have them in the background and when they are allowed into the foreground um you know they're infantilized or seen as like eating or in a, you know in a kind of extremely mystically inclined spiritual inclined in a very mm-hmm. cliched way mm-hmm. um dark mm-hmm. you know phenotypically darker overweight usually yeah. right yeah yeah yeah, exactly. Um, no, I mean, you can mm-hmm. see it across across the board, like even in um, Narcos, Mexico, Tenoch Huerta, who's such a talented actor, kind of has this like goofy, nobody takes him seriously kind of role. Like he plays a sort of clown. And it's, I mean, it's just so, <laughs> it's something that I think is starting to get addressed a bit more in Mexico, in, in the mm-hmm. news. Um, it's a topic that, I think it's starting to get some wind behind it, in part because Tenoch Huerta is so famous, and he just recently got racially profiled at a store and spoke out about that experience. Mm. And it's, um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's sort of this, I think it's this open secret in Mexico, the racism, the like rampant racism, mm. in addition to sexism. And, mm-hmm. I mean, you absolutely see that in the sorts of, um, famous Mexican Netflix productions. It has a very clear image of, you know, a certain sector of Mexican society. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it's by any means representative. And I think it's just sort of, um, it's it's what uh, Ignacio Sanchez Prado talks about, the, the neoliberal pigmentocracy. Mm, yeah. The white idealized stars, this very particular uh, section of society mm-hmm. that yeah. perpetuates some really unrealistic stereotypes and myths. Mm-hmm. So. I want to, um, before we're, we're done, I do want to, um, well, first I want to, I know you're going to want to talk about Made in Mexico um, on this topic, sure. you know, um, yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, it's this is like it doesn't you know it doesn't get any more kind of blatant there. But um, I also <laughs> want to make sure we end with a little bit of discussion of you know Roma and Lorena. Um, the, oh, for sure. Um, just because they're you know Netflix is seemingly behind some at least some revolutionary kind of you know storytelling. Um, but yeah, made in <laughs> Mexico. Oh my God, that it seems like that was kind of delivered on a platter for you yeah. as a scholar, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. No, I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, I think it's just, it's, it's the pinnacle. It's the, the paradigmatic example of um, this sort of, like, elite echelon of society being projected as this is what Mexico is. And I think that, you know, from a lot of what you were hearing from the people in the show, so this is a reality show where um, cast members have been picked. Some of them are friends, some of them are family, um, but they all sort of know each other and run in the same circles. Um, But they make it very clear that what they want to show global audiences is that they are not the stereotypes of Mexicans, um, sort of implying that, they're above these negative stereotypes, um, but doing it in just such a wrong way because uh, they are these very money-driven young people in Mexican society. And I just, I don't, uh, I can't believe like something like this gets such screen time, but Mm. I think it was fairly popular. Yeah, it's just crazy. But, I had to like yeah. tie myself to the chair to kind of get through it. I mean, right? Like this whole thing where yeah. the big tension is, you know, one character being fake and mm-hmm. I'm thinking, hold on, all of you guys, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for at least from my perspective are not only fake, you're there's nothing interesting about any any of your emotions, you know, um, Mm -hmm. going, you know, worrying about baptisms and parties and Pilates and, you know, um, the, the sort of, you know, how to look at the Dia de los Muertos, you know, celebration, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. or making a clothing line that's going to bring world peace. Um, God, I should say though, I'm, I'm not entirely opposed to shows like this because I think what they do offer potentially pedagogically is a way for students to start to understand what Mm -hmm. this like elite Mexico city um, like Mm -hmm. class is really like and their priorities and how they see the world and these sort of trends of like going elsewhere for their education, Mm -hmm. using English as like, uh, a sign of um, of privilege and their wealth and their status, and so I'm not. I don't want to say that I, I hate Made in Mexico because I think even things like that do really have potentially a teaching purpose to show um, some of the greater issues, kind of by reading these shows against the grain. Mm-hmm essentially. Yeah, no, that's great. As long as they uh, <laughs> um, yes. have some kind of, you know, 
uh, paratext or extra text to kind of guide yep. them so that they aren't taking this to be, you know, Mexico, right? Um, right. The, exactly. Going to fashion shows and art auctions and sort of a, a, a kind of cleaned up Mexico City like I've never seen. I have never oh, seen yeah. Mexico City the way it is reconstructed. And, right. Um, I mean, I think it's a nonfiction version of these sort of like bubbles that the like contemporary romantic comedy show yeah. where nobody except people from like the upper classes are, are seen on screen. Mm-hmm. They just they are completely invisibilized, just don't exist. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that genre is kind of significant here too. So we we started by talking about mm-hmm. you know Club de Cuervos and soccer and that space as opening you know a re, you know a reconstructed Mexico that's more diverse regionally um, mm-hmm. um, in terms of you know our our um, ancestral kind of phenotypic heritage, etc. You know, of course, even a show like El Chapo um, has more diversity, you know, um, but that's, you know, all about narcos. So we have soccer and narcos um, as spaces for that. And then the telecomedias, you know, are mm-hmm. spaces for kind of elite, light-skinned Euro-Mexicans, right? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Gosh, yeah, I just thought like, wow, that, you know, things seem to be pretty clear, at least in Netflix originals. Um, um, but yeah, so let's talk a little bit about some of the kind of cool things. You know, I will say this, and I know um, we haven't all seen it, but, you know, Maradona in Mexico, like the Club de Cuervos, in fact, even more so, really, um, you know, it's a documentary, but I, yeah, that was great. You know, it really did kind of dig in and show us, you know, part of, you know, um, Mexico that's very, you know, different. And it's, it, you know, in northern Mexico, it wasn't all about the Sinaloa sort of cartels. It was you mm-hmm. know, more about family. Mm-hmm. But um, on that same note, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, the huge significance of um, Cuaron's Roma. And mm-hmm. uh, maybe, maybe... Um, Olivia, you can you know talk a little bit about your sense of you know s- some of the really innovative aspects that are kind of going on, including with Roma. Yeah, yeah, I think that uh, so Roma has just been been talked about so much, and that that alone for me, the fact that a film can generate that much discussion, um, and that Netflix is that kind of platform that it reaches so many people. That's absolutely one of the pros of Netflix, the fact that people are actually even watching Mexican media. Um, I'm, I'm happy about that. I think Roma itself um, has limitations, obviously, um, but I think that people maybe don't give Cuadron enough credit for even wanting to tell this kind of story. Um, I think people often uh, kind of shut down you know, well, he can't tell, you know, the story of his nanny. Um, so, you know, why is he even doing it? And I, I think to myself, well, I mean, he could have just eliminated that from the story too. So I think credit where credit is due, he's telling a story the best he can about someone who uh, is of a different phenotype. Yeah, so with Roma, I think that what we're seeing is more significant character development, um, and perhaps in a way that shows the sort of 
separation between um, what Quadone was even able to access um, of his nanny's subjectivity and what he wasn't. And so the parts that I think are missing um, are purposely missing. Like we don't know, you know, every one of Cleo's thoughts, but um, he really communicates this class divide and the sort of invisibility um, of the domestic worker in the domestic space. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's really fantastic to be able to, to put that on screen. You know, I will say that Juan Carlos Rufo's, um, you know, Lorena Lightfooted Woman was just, mm-hmm. just beautiful. And, you know, um, the kind of going in and telling the story um, and the Taramura and the sort of, you know, this northern, the northern part of Mexico and the landscape, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in many ways kind of goes deeper and um, leaves me at least feeling much more um, like this is, you know, Lorena's story and not someone co-opting, right? And mm-hmm. someone really allowing the camera to, you know, serve as the tool to tell that story. Um, yeah. I don't know, what was your... I agree. Yeah, tell me what... I thought it was... um Especially the part where we see um, fans taking pictures with her, and she's not smiling, even though they seem to want her to smile. I love that it didn't seem like she was being forced to be someone she wasn't, that it was truly an observational documentary that really just allowed viewers to observe and to perhaps even think about indigeneity in a really different way, a way that wasn't um, maybe what people were expecting. I think that's always an important experience for viewers. Right. Yeah. And there wasn't that kind of, you know, um, the kind of Eisenstein kind of, you know, the Daramura or the indigenous subject is somehow frozen in time you know she's very much like mm-hmm. this is happening now and yeah there mm-hmm. are some politics here you know she's mm-hmm. a girl and a young woman and therefore you know wasn't allowed to go to the school and so she doesn't speak Spanish but um, it was it was so woven in in an integral way it just um, I was completely blown away you know yeah yeah I think that I mean hopefully this is the beginning of a different direction. Um, Obviously, it's so different than some of the series we were talking about before. My hope is that this is sort of a new direction, perhaps even ushered in by the great interest in Roma. Do you think it's a response to Roma? Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly a response or if Roma opened that space, you know, so that when someone like, you know, Rufo comes along and says, I want to, you know, spend, you know, couple you know x millions of dollars to make this you know beautiful uh-huh. documentary someone's going to be like oh i get it yeah um you know um people who generally with the money are pretty you know fearful and uncreative but if they've seen something succeed and you can reference it mm-hmm. and maybe that'll open a door um yeah um, two yeah. two other shows that I thought were pretty interesting, um, and I don't know if you got a chance to s- see these yet, but Taco Chronicles and A Tale of Two Kitchens. 
Um, I watched the first, but not the second. Yeah. Um, well, I'll just mention a couple things about the second, and um, you know that you know what I loved about a tale of two kitchens is that you know it was it's a you know another documentary. And both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border focusing on these two mm-hmm. different restaurants, but really focusing on how food is not just a space for connecting people eating the food, but can become a very progressive, positive space for those making mm-hmm. the food. And I was okay. thinking about my colleague here, Paloma Martinez-Cruz, and her book, Food mm-hmm. Fight, and how she calls out all the injustices that happen behind you know, the, the, the counters and in the kitchens of, you know, uh, Mexican food restaurants and how we need to become aware. Yeah, I thought that really beautifully sort of depicted, you know, how one can actually have a restaurant and actively hire, you know, undocumented workers and help them find pathways, you know, for mm-hmm. um, safety and, you know, all of that stuff. But Taco Chronicles, yeah, um, you know, that, again, you know, we have a series and um, I love that the narrator uh, is the kind of the the dish, right, that's being yeah. talked about. Yeah. <laughs> it's told mm-hmm. from the perspective of the dish. So, you know, I'm the taco al pastor, right? Um, and then we uh-huh. kind of go into that space. Uh-huh. But was there anything remarkable to you about um, the Taco Chronicles? You know, I think for me, the fact that it was divided into different types or like traditions of tacos was really a statement in and of itself, because I think that the taco in general, at least in, you know, in the U.S., there's this sort of like collapse of what the taco is into just, it's a taco, Mm. but there isn't, um, there's not really enough homage paid to the complexity of tacos and the sort of gastronomical tradition that surrounds each type of taco. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that the show did a great job. I think they, they were smart in dividing it into types of tacos mm-hmm. um, because then it really allowed them to show this sort of regional diversity or even diversity within a single place of how tacos vary. Um, but it was, it was really nice the way the, um, it was sort of not just talking to um, academics. It mm-hmm. was writers. There were people on the streets. There were people, you know, working in the kitchens. There were people, you know, owners of restaurants. It was this sort of, um, variety of voices brought together um and i liked that it was also in spanish too yeah it's so great because of course tacos is the maybe the most stereotypical way of kind of knowing you know or thinking about mexicanidad right uh for Mm -hmm. for u.s Mm -hmm. consumers at least right um so yeah, yeah to have a show completely dedicated to the nuancing of of the taco regionally, um, even within sort of, you know, different um, city spaces, regional spaces, um, how it's made. Yeah, I love that. I did. Um, So, yeah, you know, a couple of films. I don't know if you wanted to, if there were any other films that kind of jumped out at you um, from Netflix that were kind of interesting for some of our listeners to pay attention to. I know we mentioned Roma. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, um, so this one, the the one that just came out recently, Ready to Mingle in Spanish, it's called Solteras. It's not a Netflix production, even though Netflix has its little sticker in there. 
I think it's distributed by Netflix, but um, I saw it, for example, in a theater in Mexico. Um, so there was a theatrical release. But I wanted to draw listeners' attention to it because I just loved the gender politics in this film. It's, like, if anything, it it's a response to all of the romantic comedies um, and it kind of turns it on its head in a lot of different ways. And as someone who, I mean, I'm hard to impress with uh, with films related to women or like young women and like the idea of marriage or dating, courtship, all those sorts of things. I think they can be super stale in this film. It was just nice. It was great to see. I really enjoyed it, especially the end. So highly recommend that one because looking past the sort of like white elite kind of imaginary that it also performs within, I think that it's at least recognizing the problematic gender um, and or sexuality uh, politics of other films that are super popular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That twist, we, we, we won't say anything, but yeah, that twist is great. Yeah. Um, I definitely didn't expect that. So yeah, it seems like Olivia, we can probably say, well, it's not exactly business as usual with tacos and narcos, mm-hmm. but it still mm-hmm. kind of is. Um, we're seeing yeah. some ruptures in that um, space um, with some complexity in the films and in the shows. But gosh, with the kind of juggernaut of the telecomedias and the you know the the mm-hmm. sort of telenovela the the kind of morality tale stuff, uh, Monarca and, you know, the others kind of pushing their way through. Um, gosh, I, I just hope that we give more space to some of these other voices like Lorena and Solteras and, and um, some of the others yeah. like that we mentioned. Yeah, um, I completely agree. Olivia, thank you so much for joining me on Professor Latinx podcast. It was, it's a pleasure, always a pleasure to talk about Netflix. Great. What a joy. Thank you. Okay, bye, Olivia. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.